All right, guys, welcome back to another episode of the Lions Guide Podcast, where we take on topics in performance and personal growth by exploring success stories and lessons learned of our guests. We interview subject matter experts and we review books and other resources to help us establish clarity, build courage, and lead. I'm your host, Dale Walls, founder of Lions Guide. And today on this episode, we've got Joel Callsign Thor Neve. And, you know, Joel is an F 15 pilot escorted the U.S. president through the sky and flew missions to ensure the safety of the country after the attacks on 9-11. He was the tactical leader of 300 of the most senior combat pilots in the Air Force, and he oversaw the execution of a $150 million a year flight program. However, in 2010, Floor was diagnosed with stage four cancer and given about a 15% chance to live. Joel survived. Today is CEO of Afterburner, Thor leads a team of more than 70 elite military professionals who help achieve strategic objectives and foster elite teams for Fortune 100 companies within the tech industry, pharmaceuticals, finance, medical devices, retail apparel, and several NFL teams. And on this episode, Joel and I talk about his journey to be an F-15 pilot, surviving stage four cancer. After being given 18 months to live, we talk a bit about business leadership today and Joel's three C's for success in life. If you like the sound of that, before we get started, hit that subscribe button now so you don't miss any of our other great guests and content. And as always, this podcast is sponsored by Lions Guide. And if you've been tuning in and getting value from the show, then do yourself a favor and go to lionsguide.com and join our community called The Pride. For no cost to you, yep, it's free. You can get access to all kinds of free exclusive content to include yet to be released episodes of the podcast. I've got reading lists out there. I host live virtual events. Uh, there's a private online group to engage with other growth-minded members and much more. Again, it's all free. So it's been put out there to help you really break through and out of your rut and or break through to that next higher level of yourself by establishing clarity building your courage, and being the true leader of your life. So check it out now. Go to lionsguy.com and join today. And with that all said, let's get on with the show. guys and welcome back to another episode of Lions Guy Podcast and on today's episode we have Mr. Joel Thor Neeb who is an all-around high performer uh, doggone everything from what a F-15 mission commander pilot cancer survivor an author CEO American Ninja Warrior I mean we got all kinds of places to go with go with you today man so how you doing welcome to the show tell us a little bit about uh, who you are and where you're from Oh, it's great to be here, Dale. Thanks for having me. So as you said, Joel Neves, my name, my call sign was Thor. That's why people uh, will sometimes refer to me as that. And I got that call sign because as you alluded to, I was a fighter pilot for about 14 years in the Air Force after graduating from the Air Force Academy. And today I lead a team of former fighter pilots, Navy SEALs, Army Rangers, former elite military personnel that translate what made them successful on the battlefield into the boardroom and into business initiatives. Awesome. Awesome. Now, where are you doing? Is that all over the country, U.S., world, or? Definitely all over the world. Uh, in terms of our market, we have an office in Sydney, Australia, that handles a lot of the uh, APAC uh, region. And then locally, we, we're here in Atlanta, and we have team members kind of scattered throughout the states. That's awesome. Awesome. So based out of Atlanta now, but let's let's go back. Let's, let's How did you end up in the Air Force as a, a FT, F-15 pilot? 
So I went to the Air Force Academy and, uh, you know, everybody always asks, why did you become a pilot or did you know you wanted to be a pilot since you were a little kid? And I really don't have that cool of a story there. I wish I was one of those guys that said, you know, since I was five years old, I could name all the planes. And, and I certainly know those those men and women when I went to the Air Force Academy and uh, I was surrounded by them, but I didn't know anything about it. I fell into the Air Force Academy because I wanted a great education in a structured format. I love my country and uh, I was just honored to have the opportunity to be an officer in the military. And, and then while I was at the academy, I, I got the opportunity to do a little flying and, and then finally uh, got a bit of the bug. But it wasn't really until I was in pilot training that I, that I fell in love with the flying experience. And of course, I had the same reaction everybody does, which is I want to do this forever. Yeah, I can imagine like all these, all those things that have a bug, like for me, it was like playing ice hockey, you know, which was never a thing for me until later in my adult life, my wife's family was that and then jujitsu, like, but it's those things that like they get you, you don't not expect it. Like, yeah, I'll give it a try, whatever. And it's like, boom, being flying those jets, man, I can only imagine. It was an incredible experience. It's weird though. Um, I rem I'll remember the, the first time that I went solo in the T-38, which is the lead-in to fighter airplanes. It's a supersonic aircraft uh, and you know it's highly maneuverable and, uh, and a lot of fun. But as I was flying it by myself, I'm looking in my cross-check, looking at the instruments I'm supposed to stare at and then the thing on the ground I'm supposed to stare at and getting ready for my landing or whatever maneuver that I'm going to do. And I have really zero sense that I'm flying. Like I'm just doing the rote execution. It's like you playing ice hockey and thinking like left skate, right skate, left skate, hit puck, you know, just all, all those things putting together. And so it didn't feel cool. It didn't feel like it was something um, exhilarating. Matter of fact, it was a little bit just terrifying in that moment. And I remember landing on the runway and seeing one of my buddies, who's also flying solo, fly right over me a little low, trying to mess with me. And <laughs> that, that looked amazing. And I remember thinking to myself, is that how I look in this airplane? Like, it sure didn't feel like it because I'm a ball of sweat and mistakes. But uh, it was pretty cool to see the finished product uh, go right over my head. That's freaking awesome. So how long, like, how long did you do that? What was what was your military career like? Where, where did you go? Yeah, so uh, military career was immediately after graduating pilot training. I returned. It was an instructor in that same course. It's called First Assignment Instructor Pilot. And then after completing that tour, I went on to go fly F-15s. I started at Tyndall Air Force Base in Florida, went on to Mountain Home Air Force Base, got to fly the F-15 all across the globe and had an incredible time with that. And then returned to Texas to train new instructors. So I was, you know, I'm the old guy after 10 years of being in the, in the military. And so I trained the new trainers at that point. That's awesome. So what about your missions? Like what, what type of missions were you dealing, you know, when you're traveling the world flying? So the F-15 only does air-to-air -air engagements, at least the F-15 model that I flew to see. And so what that means is for those of your listeners that have seen Top Gun, it's exactly that mission. We only did the dogfighting and we only did um, fighting against others in the sky. And so, as you can imagine, we didn't have much of a dog in the fight when it came to the two wars that were taking place around us in Afghanistan and Iraq because we were just basically unmatched. Uh, we had 109 kills at that point and zero losses in the F-15. And so, and it, the big countries wouldn't want to go against this, let alone Iraq's small air force or Afghanistan's, you know, non-existent air force. And so we didn't have much of a role in either of those environments. Where we found ourselves most often is escorting the president following the attacks of 9-11 and, uh, and taking him to new places abroad and making sure that uh, he was safe on those, on those trips. Wow, that's awesome. It, now, how many missions did you fly? I flew 2,500 missions over those wow. 14 years. 
Wow. That's, and that's, that's with training as well, you know, for everything that you're training, flying missions. You got it. Yep. Yeah. The, um, now, where were you deployed? Were you over? So when you're escorting something like the president, you're, you're flying U.S. to a foreign place or stateside as well? Or what's that look like? All of the above, except it doesn't count as a deployment, really. And so it wasn't us going into an austere location and having to live in tents and, you know, go through the the experience that most of my friends went through as they're flying in combat, the F-16 pilots, the A-10 pilots, uh, the people on the ground. So our experience was very, very different over the past 20 years just by the nature of our role and our mission. Now, how, how did, you know, because this is an area I'm not, even as a veteran, I'm not familiar with in, in the pilot side of it, like, what differentiates from the Navy, Naval Air Pilots, Marine Pilots, Air Force in your case to get selected for the respective missions, right? You know, you were escorting the president, you say, and amongst other things like how, how does who does what in, in, you know, the fighter jet side? So the selection process is pretty arduous. So just to go to the Air Force Academy in the first place, you got to get nominated by a senator or a congressperson or uh, the vice president. At the time, I was nominated by Vice President Al Gore. And, uh, and, and that's a difficult process just to get to the academy. One out of every 13 people uh, is accepted. Then once you graduate the academy, now you're looking at um, getting accepted into the pilot training slot, which is what everybody wants. Ultimately, by the end of this experience, it's geared to make you want to be a warfighter and be a pilot. And so everybody um, who's qualified to fly is trying to get, get that slot. And they'll give 20%, 30% of those slots uh, for the entire class. So out of a thousand person class, 200 to 300 will get pilot slots. And then you go into a 30 person class uh, for flight school. And maybe two of those 30 people will become fighter pilots at the end of that uh, time frame, especially now. They have even less fighters because they're doing a lot more uh, remotely piloted aircraft assignments. And, uh, and so it's, it's a long process and, and there's filters all along the path and, and luck and timing and, and some good results allow me to get on the other side of it. Yeah, yeah. So and, and that's, that's getting you in there. But between like Air Force and the Navy, for example, like... Yep. Who gets what types of missions in in the fight? Yeah, great question. So that's that's a, a battle that takes place at a lot higher than the pay grades that I was <laughs> a part of. But uh, but you can imagine that the aircraft are you know chosen specifically uh, for the types of missions that they want to go pursue. So the F fifteen is very specifically uh, pr- 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 providing support and air superiority. Uh, in theater as well as for the United States. As you think about on the old days, the F-14, just like in Top Gun, or now the Super Hornet is providing air-to-air superiority in a in a sea region and, and, and landing and taking off from an aircraft carrier in that process, which means they have very different um, design on the aircraft as well. So I, I trained, one of the things I did in, towards the end of my career was trained Navy test pilots. And so we would be flying in the same aircraft and I'd have to keep reminding them, like, you, you have to very gingerly land this airplane. It's not like your Navy airplanes where they've got this massive hydraulics and the, and the gear can withstand, you know, just basically dropping it in. Because when you land on an aircraft carrier, it's the size of a football field. When I land on a runway, it's sometimes two miles long. And so I can coast for as long as I want, make it as smooth as possible. Everybody loves the landing, but not the Navy guys. They were, they were just pranging them on because the aircraft could. And so that was one of the key differences in the design of the aircraft and then then the mission and, and everything else that comes down to it. Yeah, that, you know, you see that obviously on Top Gun, the new one's coming out in this pales comparison of what you lived, obviously. But you can tell, man, they're they're slamming those 
jets yeah. on the deck trying to catch that cable or whatever. You know, that's got to be intense, man. You know, it's got to be. So, and you've landed on aircraft carriers as well. As part never of did training. that. Yeah. And it's yeah. funny at, at Afterburner, I've, I've gotten a chance to talk to a lot of those pilots, and I trained with them as well uh, in my active duty time. But but had a lot of conversations over a beverage of choice with the Afterburner folks, and and some of them would say one of the common I remember is. I was when I was flying at night in bad weather and trying to land on an aircraft carrier. There are times I would have switched places with a relative <laughs> just because they wanted to get out of there so badly, meaning they would have put someone else through this experience because it's just that horrific. And I can't imagine I've never had to do anything like that um, and uh, land on a boat that's moving up and down and, and moving away from you at the same time and sideways and listing with the with the waves. And, and it's only 100 yards long. Yeah, forget that. Right. You know, that's what I'm saying. Like that is, that is intent is as, as intense as it gets. I mean, yeah. what about, uh, in your missions, did you ever have any engagements like dogfights or whatever? No, F-15 folks in the past two decades have really, um, sat out a lot of, uh, these battles. And it's a shame because we train so hard to find ourselves ready on at, to be called up, but just by the mere fact of our superiority, it, it just didn't happen. If we had a, a big war kickoff, you know, if a China kicked off or, or some of these other very developed countries, uh, then certainly there would be a massive involvement of F-15s, particularly in the early stages of the war as we're trying to achieve air superiority, but it just was achieved on day one in, in both Iraq and Afghanistan. So, that none of my friends, none of you know, the, the folks that I flew with really had any stories to speak of um, and certainly did in the 90s as we were unproven in Desert Storm 1 when, uh, when we didn't have the record and it ha- hadn't been established at that point. There were plenty of, uh, of kills and, uh, and, and air-to-air engagements, but those have tapered off. Was there any uh, air-to-air engagements in, with Iraq the second time around with uh, the global war on terror? There were, but there were few and far between. And most of the time they were just running. Uh, I mean, literally you'd lock them up with your radar and they would just go away as fast as they possibly could because they knew the record. They knew what, they, what happened to them the first time this occurred. And if they made it over the, the border into Iran, then uh, they were safe uh, once they got over there. Right, right. So it, was it, how did you transition from a pilot to the instructor role? Was that a part of the career path or how did that transition take place? One of the great things about the military and at least the elite teams that I was on was that there's always a learning culture that's being cultivated. And what I mean by that is contrary to what you see on like Top Gun or some of these silly movies, it's the the sense of it's about me just doesn't exist. I mean, we have ego, we have bravado, we have all the things you see in the movie, but when it comes to training with each other, we knew that our strength was captured in the team and I would do whatever it took to make sure that if I found a best practice, I'm going to share it with the group. Or if I found a lesson learned to avoid a mistake, I'm going to share that with the group because of, of some bonehead mistake that I made myself. And so from that perspective, they're always developing you as an instructor. Every conversation, every debrief is around what can we collectively learn to the point where you're just by the end of your tour, you're just able and and in such a process where you're teaching others because there's always another batch of young kids coming up and it's only a three-year tour. So it doesn't take very long for you to be the old guy, right? You're two years into it and now you have the information that the new team members need. And so you have to be good at synthesizing that and articulating it. And it's really, it's made me, it's made my strongest skill set that of a teacher um, because of my time on elite military teams. Right. And, and I guess the attention to detail, the engagement, the communication requirements of, all that. Yeah, I can, I can see that. I can see that for sure. 
And it wasn't always that way. It's, it's interesting if you follow the results uh, in, in the 60s and the early 70s, we had an unacceptable loss rate in Vietnam, unacceptable in the sense that we had the better airplanes, the better, better missiles, and we were still getting shot down at a, at a rate that was surprising to everyone. And the other thing that they said was, you know, they really didn't talk to the new wingmen for the first 10 missions in combat because uh, many times they didn't live through those first 10 missions. And who wants to get emotionally involved with another person only to watch them again and again be killed? And so this this strange little phenomenon was developing where it was just kind of kill or be killed in those first 10 missions. Once you make it through that and then you've learned through the school of hard knocks on how to keep improving. And of course, that's not a good system. Sure. And so since Vietnam, uh, the emphasis has changed. Top Gun had a lot to do with that beyond being a silly movie. It's it's an actual school in both the Navy and the Air Force that's critical for sharing best practices and cultivating that learning culture. And uh, and that's one of the main reasons that we have such a strong success rate now, a strong safety rate now, uh, because of the learning that they've cultivated and nurtured. Are they two separate schools like Navy has a Top Gun and Air Force has a Top Gun? They are separate, but we do so much cross-training now, too. That's the other thing that we learned from uh, Vietnam is that we were very siloed. This is a great translation to business as well uh, because we had incredible teams, and these individual teams would do great things in their silo, but it may not have the strategic impact that they're looking for holistically. And it certainly was missing the exponential component of synergy that they could have had if they were working together. But they didn't really know people outside their silo. They didn't have a way to communicate with them. Um, They had no practice uh, working together with these groups. And so it required the structure of the organization change, the system change. And and this is such a great example for businesses, because in businesses, we often say, you guys need to work together. You know, you need to get outside your silo and and go meet so-and-so. And And when lives are on the line, we couldn't do that. When, we, when literally we're paying for it in blood and people, we weren't able to cross that chasm and work outside of our silo. So there's no reason to believe that when livelihoods on the line, something much less significant, that we're just going to figure that out in our organization as well. It needs to be something that's built and baked into the structure. Yeah, the the engagement piece, I, I feel like, it, to me anyway, you know, CEO for the last two decades, like, I don't know, it, it seems like the, the, engage, uh, the engagement culture part of the formula has finally bubbled to the top, you know, yeah. and maybe it's because it's, we're so much more of a information worker culture these days, rather than the assembly line, you know, you know, of the past type of type of worker, you come in, you have a very specific job, like, you know, it's a requirement with a lot of the careers paths that you would see today in our economy to, to it's, it's become clear how important it is, I guess is what I'm trying to get to. Yeah, that cross-functional alignment or even just cross-functional appreciation that, yeah. that didn't exist in the military. You know, one group would, would always blame the other group on, on why things weren't going well. And they're missing the fact that had they planned together, there were very clear reasons why collectively they were failing. And uh, they just missed that opportunity. Right. Yeah, 100%. And, and, and just even the uh, <sighs> understanding the that those people in that other department are perfectly human like you, like, and just building that relationship and therefore that desire to want to do a good job for the other, because now you do have that, that relationship, a little bit more of an engagement, some, some personal attachment to a degree of just having put a face to the name or, or, you know, had a conversation. It just, it does level up the desire to serve a little bit. And we've all got that desire to serve as part of our human nature, but it seems like not quite until we maybe know who we're serving a little bit better, maybe in organizations, it, that at least 
is a, is a force multiplier, you know, for, for the interdepartmental stuff, in my opinion. Couldn't agree more. And once you, once you've gotten the technical skill sets down for your silo, I think it's a race to understand the generalist approach and how this scales across the organization and how collectively it all comes together. And there are too many leaders that stay stovepiped within their silo and just focus on those goals and those KPIs. And we're doing great, but the rest of the organization is doing terrible. And and that's why, you know, we can't hit our larger goals when they're missing the fact that there's, there's uh, forcing functions that they're not yielding with, uh, with the other groups. Yeah. Look, if you're all in the same boat, that's sinking. You know, it doesn't yeah. matter if your row's still working or not. You're going down with the boat, you know. Yep. So, so talk to me about uh, your cancer survivor. What's the story there? When did, how did that come about? What what happened? Yeah. So uh, 2010, I'm about nine years into my flying journey at that point. Uh, and I'm flying. And, and the tell for me was as I was flying, I would have a little bit of a pain in my abdomen when I would pull G's. And so what pull G's means we're all under one G right now. As I maneuver the aircraft at high speeds, it, um, it creates a stress on my body and, and a turn. Like if you're on a roller coaster, you feel three or four G's. In the airplane, I could feel up to nine G's. So I, my 200 pound body weighed 1800 pounds, nine times 200. And, and what that would do is it would, I would flex as hard as I could to try to keep the blood in my head. And I would have G suit that I'm wearing, which uh, would fill air bladders up and push against my body to try to squeeze the blood out of my legs and keep it in my head. So I stay conscious when it would do that, it would inflate against something in my abdomen. And I don't know what that something was. I never suspected anything other than like a sore muscle or, you know, something that was on a scale of one to 10, like a two, but it was persistent enough that I started bringing it up to the docs and they talked me out of, uh, you know, worrying about it for a, a good year. And, uh, and with good reason, I was in great shape. And there's no reason to believe that this guy has cancer sitting across the table from them. Um, so we thought it was an infection or a muscle sprain or, you know, 10 other things. And then finally, about a year into it, they said, let's go get a scan and uh, see what's really going on. And what did they find? So what, they do the scan and I hear the one phrase that you never want to hear from a doctor as they're doing a scan and that's, huh. And, uh, yeah. I, he, he says, he says, huh. And, uh, as he's looking at something intently on the screen and now I look over at something intently on the screen. And even with my layman's interpretation of what I'm seeing, I see a racquetball where there shouldn't be a racquetball inside of my body. And, uh, and then we're off to the races with a, a big tumor that we got to take care of. Wow. And what was it? Cancer of a certain is it's, it's intestinal cancer, which was localized in the appendix. And so you, you hear that and you think, well, that's great, right? I mean, who, who needs the appendix? Cut that out and you're done. But unfortunately, it's highly deadly. And uh, the Stuart Scott is a, one of the famous people who had it. And he got it uh, within two months of me getting it. And he was dead in three years. Uh, the ESPN commentator, one of my favorites. Um, and that's really the story for most people. So it, it's usually detected late. It's a little bit like pancreatic cancer. You don't know it's there until it's too late. And the same had the same case for me. It had already spread. It had spread to my lymph nodes. It had spread to other organs, which is usually the kiss of death when it comes to cancer. And then mine's stage four on top of that. And so very, very few people have a positive outcome out of that situation. And and that's certainly what I was anticipating as well, a, a negative uh, end of life scenario. Jeez. With the, before we get in that, you know, was it the, the I don't know, the, the nonchalantness of there's a something, but don't worry about it for that year, like as a pilot, you know, while you're getting it. I, I think you said it was like a year. They were saying, ah, no big deal. Was that a detriment to the stage that you've got, right? Like if it was day one, 
would you have been that far ahead of it or was it no fact that that amount of time no factor for sure that allowed the the staging to get worse and allowed the, the cancer to spread during that year um certainly that was that was not a good thing but on the other side i was getting checked out by doctors way more than i would in any other environment like if i was you know working in an office you do your yearly physical and that's your only interaction with a doctor as a fighter pilot you are the only thing keeping safe a 50 million dollar military asset and so you're checked out like every quarter and so i had and i'm flying with my flight doc at the same time so we had a lot of conversations about this I feel like if I was a civilian, it probably would have taken even more time to expose sure. this. I wouldn't have been pulling G's and feeling the pain. And so I, I feel lucky that I was in the military, certainly for that reason and many others um, when that occurred. So where did it go from there? Right. So now you've got this news. So, so upon discovery, were you at stage four? Is that you know where you started with your yep. knowledge of having cancer? Wow. Yeah, that's where it started. It's stage four, day one. I was feeling great before that, minus the the little bit of pain that I felt. I was uh, interviewing to be one of the next Air Force Thunderbirds, and uh, you know at the peak of my career, everything's going great, and and then we got this this terrible news. Uh, and so now we're off to the races. Massive surgery right off the bat. They cut me open um, down the middle and removed all the cancer that they could see, which included part or all of four organs along the way. And uh, and then zipped me back up and said, it'll probably come back and we give you about 18 months to live. And then I wow. started chemo um, to, to extend that as much as I could. Now, what is your, at this point, kind of latest stage for us, like what's your What's your life looking like when that's happening, right? So are you are you single? Are you married? What's 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 life around you look like when this is going down? So I'm married. I'm on top of the world. I have an incredible wife. I have two kiddos, one and three years old. And uh, you know, in, in G- January of 2010, I am as happy as I've ever been. In February, I find out I have stage four cancer, and I'm just devastated and and a wreck mentally, where did you go? Like, what did, what did it look like? Really dark place. It's uh, and some people say, well, you're a fighter pilot. That's you're pretty fortunate. And you had some strength to fall back on. And maybe that's the case for some of it, but nothing really prepares you for that. And, and I think every experience is new too. I can, you know, you can tap into those strengths as you pursue something new, but um, this was a primal uh, challenge that, uh, you know, I didn't, I think one of the big takeaways for me was that I was going to die period, you know, like at, when you're 33 years old, it's just not something you think about very often. And, uh, and so it, it brought my mortality front and center and then brought the sh- short duration of my mortality even closer to 18 months. And so I, I was just inconsolable. I, I kind of just curled up in a fetal position for about 30 days and felt mm-hmm. sorry for myself, if I'm being honest. Yeah, no. And I, I mean, and I, I think that's perfectly human because you're a hundred percent, right? We're not, right, wrong, or indifferent. We're not thinking about, we're thinking about life. We're not thinking about death. Right. You know? And, um, so I think, I think that that would be a perfectly human response to the group. And what, so how did you get yourself out of that? What, what changed? What did you learn? How did you get past February? So, so in February, like I said, inconsolable, the news just kept getting worse. I had the massive surgery. They said, we think it's cancer, but it might not be. You're in great shape to, it is cancer to, uh oh, now it's stage four cancer to now it's this really rare cancer that people just typically don't get. So we can't even really treat it in the military. And I was the first person in the military to get this particular type of cancer as well. Wow. And so I, I reached out to another hospital, MD Anderson. I lived in Texas at the time and MD Anderson's the best hospital in, in six states around it. And so that's in Houston. 
And I finally got access to this hospital. And I was extremely excited about that because this is my best chance at fighting this or at least prolonging my life a little bit. And I had to drive there from San Antonio and the whole drive that I'm on my way to this hospital, I have this looming sense of dread and it just gets worse and worse. And I just am sweating and super uncomfortable. And my wife is in the car with me and the kids are too. And by the end of this trip, I can't even talk to them anymore. And, and uh, I'm, I just have this huge weight on my shoulders and I can't figure out why, because you know, rationally, I should be, I'm going to the place where they're going to help me. This should be the, you know, like I'm breathing a sigh of relief. They're going to tell me a plan and we're going to go execute against that plan. And I couldn't put my finger on what was going on. And my wife drops me off at this hospital. It's this massive hospital in downtown Houston in the middle of the city. And so I'm starting to walk up into it and I'm looking up at all these windows that, uh, that are in this hospital it goes up like 20 stories. And it dawns on me why I am filled with dread. And it's because I'm walking into the building that I'm going to die in mm. and I'm going to die in this building pretty soon. And one of these windows, I'm going to take my last look out and it, and it just hits me all of a sudden. And I remember closing my eyes and being so angry and I had a conversation with God and I said, God, we don't deserve this. This is, I've you know done the, made the right decisions in my life. I, I've, I'm healthy. I, I work out. I've done all the right things. I don't deserve this to happen to me right now. This is not fair. And you need to heal me. And I had tears streaming down my face. And it was just the lowest low that I've ever felt. And I'm, I'm really angry at God at this moment. And I opened up my eyes and I lock eyes with another person. And uh, it's a little girl. She's uh, about 12 years old. And she is staring right at me. She's got beautiful blue eyes. And she's bald. And she's got a surgical mask over her face. And she's being wheeled into the hospital by her father. And she's staring at me as she's going in to the hospital. And as she's looking at me, I connect with her and I can see that she's afraid as she's being willed. And I can just tell in her eyes as her dad is quickly wheeling her into the hospital that she's scared. And this isn't the first time she's been in here and this is, won't be the last. And she's terrified at this moment. And it was amazing because as the door shut behind her in that second, every ounce of self-pity that I had just had, my lowest low that I've ever had was completely gone. And it was replaced by a sense of empathy for this little girl. And I'm saying to myself, I am a fighter pilot. I'm 33 years old. I have a beautiful family. I've gotten everything I've ever asked for in life. I'm the most blessed guy in the world. That little girl probably won't live to be a teenager. Don't help me, God. Help her. Yeah. And as the doors closed behind her, I remember thinking and just stopped and, and said, if if I can go from my lowest low into this, this sense of empathy and connection with another human being in, in this moment, then I can choose to do that in any moment. And I said, all right, you know, from this point forward, whatever takes place, I'm going to not be afraid and I am going to choose uh, to have a positive outlook. No matter how much longer I have left on earth, I'm going to change my outlook. Hey guys, Dale here, and I wanted to take a quick break to invite you to join the launch of the Lions Guy community called The Pride. You see, whether it was at work dealing with the demands of the day or maintaining the demands of my life at home, I always seemed to feel like my struggles were unique, like somehow I was the only one struggling to find joy amidst all the weight that I felt I was carrying each day. And you know what I've come to realize is that we all have our struggles that we're up against, and it's pretty demanding. 
The only way to rise to those demands is to decide and make the change to adopt a growth mindset, to be what I call a high performer. And that's why I started Lions Guide. I want to help you break through to the next level of you and your ability to not only meet, but exceed those demands on you. And in doing so, find your joy again. If you're a growth-minded individual ready to make a change, then I'm here for you. And this is how you get started. I invite you to visit lionsguide.com and sign up to join the Pride. The Pride is the Lionsguide community for growth-minded members like you. Once signed up, you'll get special access to all the free content and resources I'm putting out there. You'll also be invited to join my live online events where I host sessions on personal growth and high performance. You'll also be able to engage with other growth-minded members on our private online group. Also, if you enjoy the podcast as a member, you'll get access not only to all the podcasts, but also the podcasts that have been yet to be released. So get access to all this and more. So break out of that rut, break into your next level and join me on lionsguide.com and let's grow together. Go to lionsguide.com and become a member of the pride today. Now back to the show. Yeah, man, that's, that's freaking powerful. And that, that's real powerful, man. Thank you for sharing that. The, so you go in obviously and you've got this new perspective. Was it, where did you go from there? How did you, how long were you there? What, what, what was the journey? Like once you, once you entered that, that hospital in Houston. So we went into the hospital and they said, really nothing we can do for you for now, except give you chemo. And chemo is like, uh, you know, starting a fire in your house to kill a rat. You know, you're, you're trying to kill the rat, but not burn the house down at the same time. It's poison. And so uh, they set me up on this poison schedule. I'm going to do it every two weeks. And, uh, and I'm still healing from my big surgery too. So we kind of got to wait a little bit to even kick off the chemo because uh, it stops all your healing processes as soon as that occurs. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but as I said, now I have a new outlook towards all of this and uh, a new sense of appreciation for the things I have instead of anger at the things that I probably won't have. And, and I went home a changed person after that and, uh, and then tackled chemo and, and the rest of this and, and had a lot of other epiphanies throughout this journey, uh, which led me to write the book. I remember saying, gosh, I wish these were things I knew prior to cancer, I would have lived very differently. And uh, there's a great quote that the dying have the most to teach us about life. And I think that's true because when, I, when any of us are dying, I used to see other cancer patients in their best moments. And I knew it was their best moments because they were just unbelievable stepping up to this battle with a positive outlook, the battle for their life. And it wasn't going well. And, and all the challenges you can imagine and all the, the heartache that they were feeling with their families and, and everything else going on, and yet they stepped up to it and they were bold. For one time in their, li- in their life, they, they stepped up to the challenge. And, and I remember thinking, like, I'm seeing people in their, at their best moments. And so you do get a, a glimpse into clarity, I think, uh, as you're going through. Then it strips away all the noise and the silliness and the BS of life that we pay way too much attention to anyway. And what's left is what matters and what should have mattered all along. And so that was that – was, you know, kind of revolutionary for me to, to be exposed to that at that time. Yeah. I, I mean, it puts things in perspective, right? That's the, the clarity aspect of it, you know, given that clarity of what's important, right. And the most important things in life aren't things, you know, and it, it, people, it, it, it feels like it takes that, um, it takes these trigger points, I guess, to, to, to wake up to the truth about, you know, what it is to live a joyful life. And it's not about, what you've got as far as uh, material things or money or whatever, man, it's, it's joy is not there. It, they are for that moment, that little dopamine hit when you're driving right. off the lot or whatever, but that's about it. You know, tomorrow you're just driving another car like the rest of us jokers. <laughs> you know? Yep. How much is enough? A little more. Right. right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. 
So, <laughs> so um, you get through that, you've got this new perspective and, and how long did you go through treatments at, at this point? So I went through chemo for the next eight months. And, and so now that's taken me up to about a year uh, point from the surgery to healing from the surgery to going through chemo. And I'm an, a year into it. Now I'm in the wait and see mode because the, the response I'm getting from them is the cancer hasn't come back yet. And we cut out everything that we saw um, and anticipate it will come back. Just go live your best life between now and then. And, uh, and they would give me that diagnosis every time I went to see them. Cancer's not here today. Most likely comes back, most likely die. Um, but go live your best life until then. And so I lived in those little periods between doctor's appointments. And, and, I, and I tried to do exactly that. So now that I've had this different outlook and I'm not living angry or terrified anymore, um, it's, it, I am living my best life and, and really engaging with people in a new way and, and trying to leave a legacy, right? In my mind, I'm thinking this is the end. So you just treat life differently when you sense your mortality, whether you're 80 or 33. And, uh, and it, it changed me because of that. And as an example, like what changed, what were you doing differently? So as I look back at my life, I realized that, uh, there were only really three things that made me happy in life as I was, as looking back at stuff. And it wasn't what I thought it was going to be like, it, I, I thought it was all the accolades. I thought it was going to be, um, the things that I fought so hard for in terms of awards or recognition that were really just feeding ego. Like you said earlier, the dopamine hit and it's real, it, it's a hit. But it's it's fleeting and it's not substance. And then at the end of life, it's not like you look back on that and say, oh, just thank goodness I got that stupid award. Right. It's, that that gives you no sense of pleasure or, you know, like, like you're leaving something behind. That just fed your ego for a moment. You, you, you really did that at the expense of someone else, typically. Right. Well, that's built in, into all of us. But what I did realize was that I did have incredible memories and they were always when. I was on an elite team on an inspiring mission, whether that was at the Air Force Academy trying to get out with this, this group of cadets that I was with. And it's not a college. The Air Force Academy in West Point and Annapolis are places you endure and it's, you know, it's not fun while you're there. Uh, and so you, you get out together. Flight school with this team or as an F-15 pilot with the team I was on and the mission I was on or with my family and uh, the elite team that they had become and the, the mission that we had taken on um, as well. And so those, these, these experiences came down to three things. I call them my three G's in this moment. Like I said, a long time to think about it <laughs> during those two years. The three G's are the following. One is uh, growth. I realized that I was my most happy, my happiest when I was getting outside of my comfort zone. I was doing something that scared me and I was expanding my capabilities and you have that sense of mastery and it's not ego driven. It's just a, we're wired to participate in things that increase our mastery and, and just, just feels good and, you know, get into flow effectively to be able to do that. And, and I realized that I hadn't been improving or growing that much in the last 10 years. I've really gotten easy to fly the airplane. And so my periods of growth were few and far between. And I really yearned for that. And I said, if I get a second chance, I'm going to get outside my comfort zone again and grow in, in a different way. The second G uh, is giving. And uh, you think, well, that, that, you know, that sounds like a Hallmark card or something. Why is that your favorite memory? And it was because I learned that when you're giving to somebody else, you can't feel sorry for yourself anymore. It's, it's a really selfish act when you, when you look at it because it's so, it's so much for you uh, when you're giving to someone else. I, I started working with a youth outreach program when my hair turned silver during chemo. It's falling out. I look like an old man and just decrepit. I couldn't even stand what I look like in the mirror. And yet when I would go to help these kids, 
it was crazy. I'd forget about it. Like, because these kids were in dire straits and they were coming from these broken homes and, and they were just desperate for a way out. And, and it was the, the answers I could give them were just basic and obvious to, to guys like you and I, but they were their lifeline that they clung to in this moment. Cause I was mentoring them out of some really trying times. And in those moments I would forget I had cancer. Like I would drive away and say, how did I forget? Like I was literally out of cancer for those two hours that I was with those kids. So giving was a key thing. And then the last one, probably not a surprise, is gratitude. And it goes back to my moment of anger with God and, and you know, how, how upset I was because I didn't have what I wanted instead of reflecting on, on what I did have. And there's a great quote uh, from Teddy Roosevelt that comparison is the thief of all joy, meaning we're, we're only really unhappy when we're looking at what somebody else has. And, and we, that's no better illustrated than when we look at where this generation is at compared to every other generation that lived before us, right? I mean, literally every other generation lived before us, 99% of us live like kings and queens of the 1800s. You had something for breakfast today that came from another continent. I guarantee something was you know, brought from another continent. That A king or a queen was the only one who had access to that in, in the 1800s. We, we have you know, all the comforts that we could ever want. We have the crazy technology that makes our lives so much easier, and yet we're no happier. Matter of fact, a lot of us are angry and upset, and it's really because we're comparing, once again, against not against those other 99,000 generations, but against the person that lives down the street. So comparison is the thief of all joy. Well, if that's true. Then gratitude is the source of joy. And you can choose gratitude. And once again, it sounds hallmarky. I almost, I, as I'm saying this stuff is so syrupy, but it's, it was the epiphanies I had in the moment and the things that have carried me on uh, since that occurred. No, I appreciate it. And I find myself like similarly, like given that disclaimer, I, it, like when I'm working with clients, I go, all right. I'm going to go a little rainbow and unicorn on you here, but we are going to find joy or like when, or when they come back and they've got some breakthrough from a, the pre- previous session, I'm like, okay, remember, remember the rainbow unicorn thing? Like, don't, don't hold this gets me. You're feeling joy. Aren't you like, yeah, it's joy. I'm like, yeah, it's joy. <laughs> you know, but, 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 you know, I don't know, but you're right. I mean, you're hundred percent right. And, and, you can't speak enough to it. And I, I'm with you too. Like the giving, I, I, I try not to say this as much because I'm in the, in the business of helping people now, but it's a bit selfish because I love seeing the results of the work I'm doing today. Like it's, 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 it, it comes back, man. Like I'm like all smiles. I'm happy. Like, you know, and I know they are too. So I, I know I'm doing a good job, but the, the fulfillment of like, giving someone else clarity or helping them like say break through to something that, that was holding them back or there was a limiting belief or whatever, man, I, you're right. I, you know, but I feel weird. Like even saying that, like, Hey, I'm doing this for me by helping. Like it's, it's weird, but it's the truth, man. Um, and I, I tell people that like when we get into gratitude, I'm like, you know, just that feeling like on Christmas morning, when someone's opened up the gift that you put for them, that just that, that joy that you feel to see the, that you've given someone else joy, right? Like, it's, it's, it's an amazing feeling. So I'm with you, man. I think all these things are, 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 are just spot on, absolutely spot on from, from a fulfillment perspective. And, and that's how we feel joy is through fulfillment. Yeah. 
So. And that connection, because so many other things I'd driven or done earlier in life were ego focused and doing things for yeah. me and investing in myself. And that's not evil, by the way. I have to throw that out there, too, because you have to build something in you in order to share that with someone else for, uh, as well. So it, it, you have, I, we call that there's a great book called The Second Summit. And it talks about how the first summit is a critical one. And that's where you're building yourself up. And that's where you're building up your own accomplishments to be able to have something to share with the rest. But the second summit, the second thing we pursue in life is where we lose ourselves as we give all of that away. The, the first summit is about building it up. And the second summit is about giving it all away. A lot of people get stuck on that first summit and they get stuck on the ego driven things. We all know a 70 year old who's still, you know, acting like Hugh Hefner uh, did in his, his later years. But if you're able to make that transition into that second summit, give it away and, and see the joy in others. As you said, it's selfish because that's the most fulfilling, way more fulfilling than getting the award pinned on your chest is when you see that uh, somebody else is excelling and, and overcoming a fear because of you. Yeah. I mean, a hundred percent. I, I'm going to, I hadn't heard of that book. I'm I'm it's on the list, man. I'm checking that out because um, it, it, that's that's awesome, and I want to dive into that topic some more personally. But um, so, American Ninja Warrior, like two, two things. Was that before that? That was post cancer, I would imagine. That was so w when I was going through chemotherapy. My three year old, um, you know, as we're going through this process, he's he's turning five over the two years that I'm I'm going through chemo and everything else, and I'm home all the time because I'm sick. And so we spent a lot of time together. And one of the things we would do is we'd watch that old TV channel G Four, which had Ninja Warrior on it constantly. And I would say, you know, dad could do all those things. Like dad, before I got sick, I could do all those things, and that I could have pulled that off. One of the things I learned from having cancer is that. I said a lot of things uh, and I kind of lived in the belief I could do them instead of putting them to the test. And that was one of the things I regretted. I didn't regret the times I failed in life now that my life is coming to an end. I regretted the, the things that I just had left undone, mostly because I was just afraid of failing. I would rather believe I could accomplish it and not put it to the test than actually put it to the test and find out that I was wrong and I was challenged by it. So then when I had a second chance at life, and this is where the survivor's obligation comes in, that you're actually living your obligation based off of what you committed to during that, that valley. And I said, well, now I got to go do it. I told him I could do it. So let's go find out how that works. And I got on the show and I, I, I spent maybe 30 seconds on my first attempt <laughs> on, the, on Ninja Warrior. And uh, it, went, it, went, it didn't fall on the first obstacle, but uh, between the second and third, and, uh, and so definitely had a good lesson learned there and then improved. I, I trained in the off season and got better and I got to go back on again and made it further. And then I plan to join again, uh, this year as well. And, and that's become a hobby of mine. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> and you've got to make the cut, right? Like you're not just, uh, just walking on, you know, you've got to go through some, some, um, I guess levels or gates to get on the main show auto guess or hundred percent. Yeah. You're doing yeah. a lot of training and, and having to video all the different things that you're capable of doing. They're just a ninja warrior. It looks like it's all these fluid things, but it's really a, a, a dozen different skill sets that they're testing. And, uh, and so you have to show those different skill sets in videos and stuff that you send in there. And so I did that and, and trained for a long time in order to get to the point where I was ready. And, and, and you know, look, I, I know that as a, I think I got in my first show at 42. So I'm, I'm, I'm confident that there was a 25 year old that could, that was more ready than, than I was for this. And I'm yeah. under no delusions that my cancer story did not propel me forward and on this TV show uh, to go join the ranks of that group. But I, you know, I'd earned it by the time I got there, I definitely trained and was ready. So, so you're on Ninja Warrior at, at 40, 42. Is it the first time yep. you're on your side? Yeah. So in, in what's, what's the message you're given to 
the 40 year olds out there like, oh, I'm too old to work out. You know, the, what's, what's, what's the lesson, man? Help, help me out here with this one. Yeah, it's, it's definitely a lesson that I've seen again and again. And that is that we, we put limits on ourselves, um, self-imposed limits that just do not exist. And, you know, you look at, at, at great athletic specimens like Goggins is an example, the former Navy SEAL, uh, part of the book, uh, Living with a SEAL by Jesse Isler. And he was he's now in his 50s, I want to say, and he's just in phenomenal shape and he used to be in terrible shape. And so it's you can you get to choose the, these where you want to be in life. Tom Brady's another great example. Right. Is, does, does genetics play into it? Sure. I'm, I'm, I'm sure it does to a certain extent. But it's way more dependent on his behaviors and the things that he's choosing to do at this age. And so we're all seeing that at this point. And I think what people miss is they look at guys like you and I that in our, you know, as we get older, we continue to work out and and focus so much on this. And they say, oh, like that's just so much discipline. Doesn't it get harder as you get older? And isn't that that just sounds terrible. What I want to tell them is now, I worked out for an hour today. And that's about what I worked out for when I was in my 20s. Uh, and if I didn't work out this morning. I would have been angry all day. And that's because the, the little secret for the people that are really successful is that the good habits are just as hard to break as the bad habits. And that's something I never really understood when I was young. And I watched somebody else have all these good habits and I think they just have to be on top of things constantly and just fighting all of the, just with all their willpower, not doing the thing, you know, the other bad habits. But what you realize is once you get into a routine, like if you take, I'd, you know, no sooner drink for five days uh, than I would, you know, miss workouts for five days. And so it's, I don't, I avoid the bad habits because I'm just not used to them and I'm stuck in my routine of the good habits. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it like, sorry folks, it is that easy. Like everything else is just low, low hanging fruit excuses. Like, oh man, I'm 40. I can't, nope. You know, I'm, I'm, what the heck am I these days? I'm, I'm 41. I'll be 42 next year and I'm in the best shape of my life. Period. Yep. I would whip the crap out of the twenty-year-old me. He, he didn't stand a chance, and um, and that's just because it's just habits. Like now, now do I recover or it, like? I guess the emphasis on not allowing the bad habits has definitely grown in my mindset. Like I, I don't drink anymore. I'm, I'm yep. very conscious of the amount of sleep I'm getting. Um, even more conscious on the what I'm eating now. Like like I, I don't know. I've I've learned what works and doesn't work as far as my body and its needs to maintain that level, but it's all good stuff. Like it's, it's just being more intentional, you know, and, and just having the commitment, checking the excuses. And you're right, man, like a guy like Goggins and these guys that are like ultra marathoners in their fifties and beyond, like, you know, everything that you guys out there listening, like you're just telling yourself this stuff and it's making you feel better. And, you know, it's, it's that get, get me off the hook stuff, but I, I totally honor what you're saying. I appreciate you bringing that up. Yeah. And it's, and it's hard because if we go the other route, if we stop letting ourselves off the hook, then we got to be accountable. And, and then we got to say, there's a gap between where we are and where we could be, but you're either going to realize that now, or you're going to realize it like I did when you're on your deathbed. Yep. And it's, it's going to be plainly obvious then the things that you could have done as you look back over your life, because you're going to look at it with much, much more clarity at that point. And there's, there's another great quote that uh, the definition of hell is the following. On the day you die, the person you became meets the person you could have become. And, and I think that's in the back of the mind for a lot of people. Like we all let ourselves off the hook. You don't have to be a specimen with washboard abs and, and, you know, flex in, in front of the mirror. That's silly, but why not live your best life and, and be in the shape that allows you to be active and do the adventures that we all are called to do and that draw all of us. 
Yeah. And, and back to clarity, right? Like if you are, if you have the courage to kind of bring clarity, like to how you're living, right. And the net result of what you're eating, how you're acting, how you're spending your time, you'll see real quick that it's all, it's your, the, your ability to get better is just as accessible as the, as the low hanging fruit excuses. You know, it just, yep. it just takes the courage to face yourself. I mean, just face yourself. Like you're doing it. You're doing it to yourself. It's nobody else. It's, it's you, man. <laughs> like It really is. It really is. It's, and it's simultaneously depressing, but extremely liberating once we realize that we're the common element to everything bad that happens in our lives. And uh, we're the common denominator to all the negative things that we experience. And as soon as we acknowledge that and own that, is it a little depressing? Yeah. I mean, if, as you as you own up to the, the stuff that you don't like in your life and you realize that at the end of the day, it really is on you. Uh, but it also allows you to choose a different path from that point forward as well. Well, it's doggone liberating, right? Yeah. It's it's liberating because, you know, and I guess that's I guess that's the, the difference of those who are depressed with the state of their affairs, their life or whatever. And those who feel the joy of growth, like I'm glad you used the word growth, like because if buddies of mine said a long time ago, things that aren't growing or dying, you know, and so, you know, just think, put that in perspective of, you know, if you take ownership of your own growth, because versus the person you get, the world's against me. Well, you're outnumbered then, bro. Like if it's all, if everything's against you and your success and being the next version, you're like, yeah, that's a, that's a pretty pitiful place to be in your head, right? Like there's nothing I can do. The world's out to get me. Okay. You know, but if you trace it back to how you got here and, and what's causing you to be here and start making those changes, like it's a liberating feeling, especially once you start building that momentum, you know, with each little step and start seeing those results, you know, bounce it forward for you. You know, it's, it's, it, it just, in that momentum just starts to take off. And like you said, it gets easier because it's now habit, your body acclimates to what you're putting it through. And, you know, it's, it, it's a good place to be. It's back to, back to our joy word. You know, you start to feel a little bit of joy in life again. And even when life hands you the, you know, the lemons and the, and the tough times and the cancers and the death of parents and the death of children, God forbid, and what all the other horrible things that do happen. And, and for the listeners out there that are saying, well, yeah, you, you got in shape. Good for you. But, you know, you have no idea what I'm enduring right now, what I'm going through. The thing I would leave you with, because I talk a lot of, with a lot of these folks that sadly have, you know, I, I, after having of a cancer battle like that, I get thrust into a lot of cancer conversations and just a survivor's, you know, element. And one of the key things we talk about is there's still a choice. And that's powerful. Between that action and your reaction, there's still a choice that we have into how we're going to react. And, and we can use it and become bitter or we can become better because of it. And it do doesn't justify the pain, doesn't justify the bad things that happen to us, but it allows us to reframe it in a context that, uh, that is better for us. Yeah. And, and look, and we'll segue into what you're doing now with this, but the more you work on yourself, the more the things around you get better. Right. And, and so tell us a little bit about Afterburner and, and what you're doing today. So Afterburner is a company that's been around for 25 years. Uh, so well before my time, I was still at the Air Force Academy when it was founded uh, and started in 1996 by someone who had an epiphany, much like what I had when I went through uh, flight training. So the leader of, of Afterburner at the time, a gentleman named Jim Murphy, still with us. He's the chairman of our board uh, now. He 
went through pilot training and he was a farm boy from Kentucky. He'll tell you, you know, he went to the Harvard of the South University of Kentucky and, and was not the, the brightest guy at school, even at that school. And uh, these are all his words, by the way. And yet he was pulled and I use the word pull very intentionally pulled through a system that spit him out as a fighter pilot flying faster than the speed of sound with eight of his closest friends separated by a couple of feet in an airplane uh, within, you know, 10 months. This entire process had transformed him so that he was able to do this. And he just had this epiphany and this, this moment where he said, how did that happen? There's something really special that just pulled me through this. I wasn't pushed through this because I couldn't push myself to do it. It was literally a system that pulled me through it and spit me out better than I could have been. And he said, if we could use this system in business and translate that into other teams, we'd be unstoppable. So that's how Afterburner was founded on that premise. And, and I, I had a similar revelation as I'm going through pilot training. I'm thinking the same thing. Like I have no business flying this plane faster than the speed of sound and doing all these amazing things with it. Like this, I'm not the guy that you would pick on it as a teenager that, that would end up doing this. And yet here I was. And it's because of the system and the people surrounding me. And so at Afterburner, we look to create successful teams from the same principles. We believe that success is comprised of two things. One is inspired alignment meaning we are aligned to a common vision, a common strategy, focused towards that strategy, and you've inspired me against it. It's, it's something where I can see the bigger picture. We started off the conversation talking about, you know, how do we break down the silos and get people to work together? This is it. You let them look up from their silo and, and pull their nose off the grindstone and look at the horizon and say, if we work together, what could that be? Aspirationally, what would take place? And then we start to prove out something really powerful and exciting, and people look around and they say, we did work together, we could really pull that off. That's inspiring. That's alignment. And then the other side of that, the second thing that's required is disciplined execution. They're very different muscles, building inspired alignment and disciplined execution. Disciplined execution is about setting the cadence for execution, setting accountability, setting focus, setting agility so that when the inevitable pop-up threat emerges, we're able to navigate around that as a team. And they're two sides of the same success coin. Uh, very, very different skill sets to govern creating inspired alignment versus discipline execution. But once you have both of those, that's where we see teams do something really special. Wow. Yeah, no, it's awesome. The, um, cause I think it's, you see this a lot with growing businesses, um, where they need to regroup and instill that discipline of a system because it, you know, in a business, if you don't have a system, what adjustments are you making? Right. You're right. just in a organized chaos. Um, but you, but you can't be agile. You can't measure what's working, what's not working, and you'd be effective to make change to, to produce a different result unless you have established a system that you're working against. Bring some definition to it. And, and it's it's the logical next step to those you know individual hacks as well. We, we, t we started this conversation about how do you build yourself individually, the three G's, and, and, and that's really important stuff. But it's almost a race to leave independence, which is what you're creating there, and move into interdependence mm -hmm. and figuring out how you create synergy with others and create alignment with others and execution with others along that path. And you have to create that independence first so you have something to give to the team uh, once you're done. But in, in your example, as you, as you think about the group that doesn't have structure, doesn't have a system, that's back to the 1970s and 60s era pilots where we're just relying on the heroics of a few individuals that are really strong performers because they happen to live long enough in the airplane to have enough on-the-job training to get good at it. We don't have a system that's creating that success. We're, we're relying on people, on individuals, and, and, it, and that's not something that's sustainable, and it doesn't take us very far. And people aren't very happy in that environment either. 
a lot of groups will say, I don't know if I want the military guys coming in here and putting system and structure. That sounds like four letter words. When, when I think about all my great autonomy and I got this West Coast culture and we're Silicon Valley, whatever, you know, fill in the blank. But what we find is when you put in that structure, particularly around the minutia, the stuff we really shouldn't care about. How are you going to conduct your meeting? How are you going to do planning? How are you going to do all these different things from a process perspective? Once you erase the autonomy and the entrepreneurship around those silly things, well, then we get to focus and funnel all of our creativity along the stuff that we wanted to. Anyway, being a good leader, helping, helping to advance technology and innovation with products. But now we have the process and the system to facilitate all of that and things go much faster. Yeah, no, I, I'm with you 100%. And that's the difference between that that first two-year entrepreneurial mode and being a real business owner, right? Because a business is a collection of systems that are producing a desired result, right? Uh, entrepreneurial, you're in, in, in survivor mode, you're figuring out, you're, you're testing your hypothesis of what, what you think your business is going to be, what the market wants, what the market can bear. But once you start getting that system of execution, and, 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 and it's something, what you said there, which takes us right back to a keyword that we've talked about a lot, which is clarity, right? Like when you start eliminate building these systems and eliminating the ambiguity, oh, and by the way, assigning responsibility properly. So there's no more of, well, I wasn't supposed to do that. Was I supposed to? And, and you know, I'm sure you see it every day and the clients you're dealing with, there's just a lot of ambiguity due to lack of systems, which causes some you know, not only dysfunction, but frustration, you know, culturally, you know, within a org. That's such an important point, Dale, because a lot of leaders think that um, as I'm putting systems on, I'm just piling on additional thing and additional thing on my team. When it works best is when we're taking stuff off of their plate. And the, the best analogy I can give is as an instructor pilot for my team members, my job was to tell them out of the 350 instruments in the cockpit, which two or three things to look at in a given phase of flight. If I was teaching you how to land, I would tell you, I want you to focus on two things, your aim point and your aim, airspeed. Your aim point is that spot on your canopy that's not moving anywhere else. That's just getting bigger on the runway. And that's, that's where you're going to land. I want that aim point to be right in the center of the runway. And then your airspeed, I don't want it to get any slower than what we'd call stall speed. And I'm going to tell you exactly what that is and at least stay above that. And are there other things taking place around you that are important? Sure. But those are the two critical elements to that phase of flight. And we broke it down the exact same way for every phase of flight because we knew it was not about telling you the 20 things you could consider. And it was more about telling the two most important things to consider that will optimize the system. Yeah, and what are, what are some of the results you see for an organization that, that takes, takes the initiative and, and applies the leadership necessary to make this transition into a more structured system-based organization? It's, it's a bit of a superpower when you can do that because a lot of the noise goes away when that takes place. And you're able to focus on the critical few. And we know the critical few because we built the critical few in an inclusive environment. In other words, we're not just picking random instruments in the cockpit to focus on. That's not good either. Uh, we're picking the two most important things to focus on based off of assessment from the rest of the team based on inclusive planning. So everybody has their fingerprints on the plan and, and we're weighing all these decisions with the rest of the group. And then because we're able to do that, we quickly move into a learning organization. We can really only learn and have agility when we're all operating off of the same playbook anyway, right? There's a, uh, the analogy I'll give for that is 
this flock of starlings. There's, uh, you know, massive flocks of starlings, these little teeny birds that fly thousands of them at a time. And uh, what they've learned is that when a hawk enters the flock of starlings, they'll behave very predictably around that hawk. And they'll all like scatter. It looks like an amoeba moving around that hawk. And they'll leave the hawk in a little bubble of air and the hawk doesn't get any of the starlings. And, uh, and the reason I bring that up is because the starlings are all moving in the same direction. They're operating off of the same mentality, the same direction, the same focus, and they make decisions the exact same way because of that. So when the pop-up threat emerges, this hawk that enters their flock of birds, they're able to, as one, maneuver around it. Well, as a company, we need to be all going the same direction. We need to have the same focus points. We, and that's going to allow us to see those threats earlier and then make the informed decision about how to navigate around it as well. And what we find is not only do you start with a better plan, but you execute with better agility, and then you increase learning for this group as well. And when we do that, you know, Malcolm Gladwell likes to talk about 10,000 hours to mastery uh, in his book. And, and he gave all these examples of the Beatles playing and CD joints and, and uh, athletes and how it took them 10,000 hours to get to the point where they were really strong and strong performers. It takes way less than that to create mastery as a fighter pilot because of the system we had in place to learn. And you can apply the exact same thing to your business team. Yeah, man. I know. I love it. So a lot of great stuff there. We could go all afternoon, I think. Well, hey, I totally appreciate you coming on. It was great to connect with you. It's awesome. Tons of gold and valuable information there. I appreciate your story and all your experience and and, uh, and look forward to keeping the conversation going, staying in touch. And uh, But hey, thanks for coming on. It's a great show. Yeah.